This is episode 283 of the Beyond the Food Show. And today we're going to talk about gut health, IBS, and all things digestive health in the context of a non-diet approach. And we have an expert, Beth Rosen. Stay tuned. Welcome to the Going Beyond the Food Show. I'm Stephanie Dozier, clinical nutritionist and certified intuitive eating counselor, creator of the Going to Beyond the Food Method. And after a 25-year dieting career that started at the age of 12, I decided to say hell no to diet culture and hell yes to living my life to the fullest in my now body. And I made it my mission to help smart, successful women like you live confidently, unconditionally right now. Ready, sister? Let's do this. Hey, if you're new to the Going Beyond the Food Show, our podcast roadmap has been designed with you in mind. With over 250 episodes available to listen, it can feel overwhelming to know which episode to prioritize for you. The podcast guide answers the top five questions women have when they enter our world of going beyond the food to unlearn diet culture. To get your free copy of our podcast roadmap guide, head over to stephaniedozier.com forward slash roadmap or use the hyperlink in the show notes. I'll see you on the other side. Hello, my sisters. Welcome back to this podcast that I think is going to become a cornerstone. I have been wanting to do an episode on the topic of gut health, digestive condition, digestive disorder, digestive health, anything digestion for at least two and a half years. And I was never able to find an expert in the field of digestive health that wasn't co-opting wellness culture or diet culture. And then Beth came into my life. I was introduced to Beth Rosen, our guest today, who's a non-diet dietitian with more than 25 years of experience dealing with digestive health in general, that we think about IBS, that we think about colitis, any form of digestive condition, that's her niche. And she helps people one-on-one without co-opting any form of restrictive diet. She does use, and she'll talk about that in the episode, she does use some form of temporarily removing some finite amount of food, but for a period of two to three weeks. That's different, right? That's not what we're hearing in mass media or in the culture of wellness, where we have these um, long-term protocol, very restrictive with a lot of supplements and detoxes, all in the name of gut health, right? And for any intuitive eating professional or non-diet professional listening to this, we see that day in and day out in our practice where people come to us so badly wanting to stop dieting and restricting food, but they've accumulated a list of food that they, quote, have to restrict for health reason. And then they're like, but how can I work with intuitive eating when I have to restrict all these foods? This is why I wanted to do this episode. And I pulled Beth aside and I'm like, can we do something for the public podcast? Beth 
just a little bit of background here. Beth is an expert teacher in our non-diet mentorship program for health professional. And she is going to be teaching a class in the month of July or August of this year on uh, GI disorder, gastrointestinal disorder, and disordered eating for all of our professional students. So I thought, let's pull her in into our public podcast and let's talk about this in a non-professional setting for all of you listening here. Unfortunately, most of the information that's available at the population level with regards to, we'll call it gut health or digestive health right now, is poisoned by diet culture and wellness culture. So that's what we're going to talk about today. And and Beth is an evidence-based practitioner, so her teaching today are not just how to thin air, they're actually based in research and science and what is known in science as what contributes or doesn't contribute to our digestive health. So we're going to talk about food intolerance. We're going to talk about um, food sensitivity, food allergy, IBS, all forms of um, gut health or digestive health issue. We're going to talk about what is the non-diet approach. So if we don't do all this restriction, what else do we need to do? Also going to talk about microbiome. So ready to do this? Let's talk to Beth about digestive health. Welcome to the show, Beth. Thanks so much for having me, Stephanie. I cannot tell you how excited I am for this podcast because I believe that this is going to help so many women. So can you do us a quick introduction to who you are, how you got to do what you do, and specifically around your field of specialty, which is GI disorder? Sure. So I'm Beth Rosen. I'm a non-diet registered dietitian, and I have a private practice in Connecticut in the United States. Uh, I have been a dietitian for 25 plus years. I'm sort of aging myself. Um, and I have been on a journey of many different things. I've gone from worksite wellness to school lunch to private practice, weaving in and out. I landed on GI health because I had my own GI issues. And when I wasn't getting help from my medical providers, I decided to seek it out myself and start doing some big time research and attending conferences. And it became a grand passion of mine. And so I began to focus solely on people with uh, GI disorders, mostly functional GI disorders, so things like irritable bowel syndrome, gastroparesis, things like that. And because I focus on those things, people with eating disorders and disordered eating found me uh, because as we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about that people with those disorders tend to have GI disorders. So not only do I work with people with GI disorders, I also work with helping people get off the diet cycle, make peace with food in their bodies, and also manage their eating disorders and disordered eating behaviors. And that's why that's like the bio you walk us through. That's why I think you're the perfect person to have this conversation with, which we've never had on the podcast so far, because I was never able to find someone who's not going to throw in wellness culture or diet culture in the mix. So you're it. Are you ready for this? I'm totally ready. You will not get any of that stuff thrown in by me. <laughs> awesome. So I'm going to start with a very basic question, because I hear that all the time. Well, it's about gut health. 
what is gut health? Because we hear that all the time. So what is gut health? So to me, gut health is a diversified microbiome. And we can get into detail about what a microbiome is. Um, but also a gut that functions well and is structurally healthy. That's very basic. Very basic. Simple as that. And for, for, for people who don't know biology, when we talk about gut, we're talking about stomach, small intestine, and colon, like the way we put in food into our mouth to the way it leaves the body. Anything between those two is what we call the gut. Am I correct? Yes, from mouth to <laughs> anus. <laughs> from point A to point B. Right, right. So the esophagus plays a role in there too, but otherwise you got all the other characters. Perfect. So when we talk about gut health, we're talking about the quote, health of those organs between point A and point B. Right. And they all work together. So part of that is, you know, functioning in sync with each other. And part of that health comes from how, what, how is the health or the structure of those organs doing? We're talking about the health of the tissue and how they're working together to get the food from point A to point B. Exactly. The muscle movement, the tissue, all of those things. Yes. Okay. So there's this big trend in wellness culture, right? Mm -hmm. That said that every disease starts in the gut. Therefore, gut health is the most important things we can do for our health. What do you make up of that? I love how wellness culture finds the newest little thing like the study of our microbiome and decides to co-opt it for every other reason under the planet, right? So research had begun a number of years ago and we found out that not only do we have microbes living in our gut, and I say microbes because it's not all bacteria, there are other things in there Um, One could be called archaea, one could be called fungi, right? So we have all these different creatures living in there. So we call them microbes, right? Um, And what we know is that there are 10,000 microbes per cell in our body, which means basically that we are the host to these bugs, right? (laughs) Because there's more of them than there is of us, Yeah. right? Um, And we we don't know yet what they all do how they all play with each other, if they play well or don't play well. We don't know if one needs a partner in order to function well. We don't know if one creates something that another one needs in order to function well. We don't know that yet. We know a little bit, certainly not all of it yet, right? Um, And I think what happens is there's this thing called correlation in research where something happens in research and the researchers say, this may have been caused by this, but we don't know. And then the media picks it up and changes the terminology that this causes this rather than this may be related to this, this causes this. So all of a sudden you start to see probiotics in skin cream and probiotics in breakfast cereal, right? And it's everywhere. And that is really, it's just like you said, wellness culture, taking something and running with it when we don't yet have enough information about it. And the danger in that is that when we take something where we don't have enough information about it yet, we don't know yet if it's dangerous, let alone neutral to our body to be taking in probiotics and which strains. I mean, if we have all of these different kinds of microbes, which ones are the ones that are going to be beneficial? We don't know all of that yet. 
So to, to follow that lead and say that I'm going to make my gut healthy by taking all these probiotics because gut health is where it's at, isn't really accurate. What we do know is that a diverse population of gut microbes indicates a healthy gut, but that's all we know. Hmm. So basically, it's the same people following this podcast will know that there's no correlation between health and weight. We've talked about that at nauseum. But what you're saying, it's the same principle here. There's no causation between the number or the quality of your microbiome and X and X and X health condition. It's just correlation at this point. Correct. Interesting. So I think this is really important for people to understand it's just, again, wellness culture or the, this industry co-opting in a way of making money. But as a result of that, we are in a state of fear constantly about, quote, our gut health. That causes side effect. Am I correct? Yes. It's amazing how long our, our, our humans have lived not knowing this information. <laughs> And now that we know it, we fear that we're going to have a, a demise if we don't focus on controlling it. Because there is, and this is where I'm going to draw on your knowledge, but I know so much that there is an intersection between a health condition or GI issue called IBS, right? Mm-hmm. And disordered eating or eating disorder. I'm not sure which one of the two has been associated with it, but basically the more we could say the more we obsess with food and the more compulsive or we have behavior around food, there's a risk of that causing GI issue or quote gut health issue. Is that correct? Yeah, that does exist. That research exists. So there's research that shows that up to 98% of folks with diagnosed eating disorders have functional gut disorders as well. Whoa, 98%. Yeah. And another number for you is that 90% of folks with anorexia, which is a restrictive type of eating disorder, have GI disorders or obtain GI disorders. That's mind-blowing. Yeah. I I just want to pause that to say most people listening to this podcast are not diagnosed with an eating disorder, but you have to understand that research specifically focus on those two categories because they're diagnosable condition. Sure. Right? But that doesn't mean that people with disordered eating or a long history of dieting are not possibly having the same health issue or gut health issue or IBS. Am I correct? Correct. Because we know that restriction can lead to GI disorders. So even though you might not have been diagnosed with an eating disorder, if you didn't seek out a diagnosis, who's to know if you have one or not? And Mm -hmm. you seek out a diagnosis for an eating disorder with a clinical or licensed therapist, right? A doctor's not going to do that. A dietitian can't do that. And so you have to seek that out. And unfortunately, not all practitioners are screening for it. I screen for it in my practice, but not all practitioners are screening for it. And so you can fall through the cracks. And wellness culture is so pervasive that disordered eating is the norm. Absolutely. Right? So who's to say that there aren't more people with eating disorders that are just undiagnosed because they're so entrenched in wellness culture, that they get overlooked. Absolutely. So what's the difference? We'll come back to the IBS. I'm not leaving that alone. Don't worry, we'll come back to this. But what's the difference between eating disorder and disordered eating? Can you clear that up for people listening? 
Yeah, sure. So there are criteria for diagnosing eating disorders. There are a number of different eating disorders, and each one has a set of criteria. In the DSM-5, which is a diagnostic tool, it's a book that you can look up all of that information. I'm not going to go into the nitty gritty. And a practitioner will go through, or a therapist will go through all of those to see if you have them and then can diagnose you with those, right? Um, Disordered eating is participating in some of those behaviors, but not necessarily all of them, or not to the extreme, right? So things like restrictive eating is definitely high on the list. Fear of certain foods, cutting out food groups. These are all disordered eatings, right? Not listening to your hunger and fullness cues. And this is where I want to draw the link for all of you that have been part or currently are still part of wellness culture and wellness diets. Like when we say we have to go on a diet for gut health, right? The big one was removing grains, right? Grain was supposed to be the antichrist of gut health, right? That's disordered eating. When we're restricting an entire food group, that's disordered eating behavior. Yes. And restricting grains is going to cause more uh, more symptoms associated with GI disorders because those microbes, big newsflash, feed off fiber. And where do you get fiber from? Grains. So you need grains in order to feed the microbes that help to balance the gut. <sighs> okay, let's go back to IBS before we lose that okay. one up. <laughs> so 98% of people diagnosed with eating disorder have did you say IBS or GI issue? GI issues. GI issue. And 90% of anorexia. What is causing, or do we know what is causing restrictive eating behavior to cause GI issue? Do we understand? So I would say an educated guess without having research in front of me is that the restriction itself limits feeding the gut microbes what <laughs> they need in order to produce things like short chain fatty acids, which help to better our bodies and our things our body needs. Um, And when those things are missing, those microbes can't do their job to take care of us. Our microbes are also responsible for our immune system. So there's a breakdown of a lot of things when they aren't fed, right? And so when there's restriction in place, then those microbes aren't getting fed well. And then there can, from that, there can become a GI issue, but it can exist on its own as well. So um, something like IBS can be genetic and you could be predisposed to it. And if you have uh, disordered eating behaviors, it can then create a um, turn that gene on for lack of a better word, or create that environment where IBS develops. Now I'm, I'm going to propose something here and I know there's likely no research on this. So this would be clinical observation. So that's the difference folks. Like when there's research, it's typically very like black and white. What I'm going to propose here is the whole emotional and mental aspect of one's health. And I know that's not provable to research. Although it is. Oh, is it? So the link between our mental and wellness health and GI issue. So there can be a link there because as part of um, eating disorders, they are mental health diseases. And so there can be a miscommunication between the gut and the brain, and that can cause irritable bowel syndrome. So there is, there is research to show that as well. But 
when we talk about wellness, typically all we talk about is diet and exercise and our physical, physical health. Right. But there's so much more. There's our mental, our spiritual, our intellectual, our emotional, our, our financial, our all environmental, all these different parts of our health. And when only one piece is focused on, like it is in wellness culture, all these other parts aren't, aren't um, even. So we're sort of skewed one way and we don't really have health or wellness if we don't have all of those things in balance, right? Mm-hmm. So when our mental health is impacted by food fear or fear of weight gain um, or poor self-esteem or poor body image issues, those things can certainly further exacerbate GI symptoms. What I have found in my practice is that the stress caused by restrictive eating behavior, Mm -hmm. right? Forget about just, uh, we're not talking about not enough to eat. We're just talking about the mental stress of having to go out and not being able to eat like everyone else and dragging your food around or constantly being in a state of mental deprivation that has an impact on our stress load or allostatic load in our body. And for some reason that shows up in our gut in the same way that when we have gut feelings, we feel it in the gut. I find that with a lot of people that come to my world, their stress shows up in their guts. Is that something you as well observe, which then is diagnosed as IBS by the doctor? And very much so. There are uh, there are criteria to diagnose IBS, but stress is definitely a symptom. It's a trigger, um, but it's not a criteria for diagnosing. So you can have anxiety and depression and overload of stress and still not have IBS. But if you have IBS, stress will exacerbate or can exacerbate your symptoms. So if you've ever had somebody say they have a nervous stomach, that when they get anxious, they have to run to the bathroom. If you have IBS, that's going to happen from just a little bit of stimuli and your body will react in a big way. That's called visceral hypersensitivity. That pops up from the reaction of, of, of stimuli. So it could be stress. It could be lack of sleep. It could be certain foods and then it will trigger the gut. So there is this communication between the two for sure. And that can also lead to miscommunication as part of IBS. There can be this miscommunication that causes symptoms to occur Hmm. from stress. Because I'll share a personal story here, but the story of many women who have gone through unlearning diet culture, I had more gut issue when I was in the wellness world on restrictive diet than I have today, being an intuitive eater. I believe it's because of all the amount of restriction, but also the stress I was causing myself. And that's what we find. People go through the process of intuitive eating. They come out, they're like, wow, IBS is gone. But I'm eating all these foods that I wasn't allowed to eat before. Yeah. So, you know, with um, eating disorders, there is there is research to show that when the eating disorder goes into recovery or recovery work starts to um, happen and nutrition rehabilitation occurs, that the GI disorder will ameliorate itself. But if the eating disorder persists undiagnosed for a long time and the GI disorder comes from that, even if you heal the eating disorder, the GI disorder could then persist on independently of the eating disorder. So if there are disordered eating behaviors, it may behoove your listeners to go get checked out, to go see a therapist and work on their relationship with food and their body so that they don't 
end up with a GI disorder, or if they have one, to help heal the GI disorder. There's actually a class of therapists that are GI psychologists. Really? Mm -hmm. And they help with gut health. And they understand all that you're talking about, obviously, in more depth, but they help people with that. Yeah, they do. Uh Okay. Okay. This is getting clearer. Let's talk about food sensitivity. Are you on for that? Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So food sensitivity, food intolerance, and food allergy. Can you kind of give us a synopsis of how we move through this and what's the difference between each other or is there? Yes. So food allergies are things that can be tested either through a blood test, an IgE response, that's the the immunoglobulin or the immune response responsible for telling your body, there's something in here we do not work well with, and this is going to harm us. And this is the reaction the body has, and it's in the blood if you have it. You can also see an allergist and get tested for specific foods through these skin prick tests that they do. And that will give you a definitive answer of whether or not you have a food allergy right? And eating something that you have an allergy for may cause harm to your digestive system. So for instance, if you were allergic to wheat, like people who have celiac disease, if you eat wheat, it will cause damage to the villi or the absorption finger-like projections that are in the intestines to the point where you will not be able to absorb nutrients, which causes malnourishment and can eventually lead to, and not in every case, but can eventually lead to cancer if untreated, right? So that's a reason why you would not eat wheat. If you had an allergy to wheat, it could cause damage, right? So that's allergies. Food intolerances, some of them can be tested. So things like lactose intolerance, can be tested. There's a breath test for it. You go to your gastroenterologist's office, you drink a substrate or a, a little drink, and then you hang out there for a couple of hours. And every 20 minutes, you're blowing into a tube and they're recording the production of certain gases to determine whether or not you have a lactose intolerance. If you eat foods that contain lactose, and those are dairy products like milk and yogurt, cheese, ice cream, if you eat those and have a lactose intolerance, you will develop symptoms, right? So gas, bloating, maybe diarrhea, maybe constipation, right? But though, if you eat dairy, it's not going to do damage because it's an intolerance. It's not an allergy. You can have an allergy to dairy because there are proteins in dairy that you can have an allergy to. But most likely, if you have an intolerance, it's not going to cause damage. And there are enzymes you can take while you eat so that you can enjoy more food. So you don't, if you have a lactose intolerance, you don't need to avoid dairy. There's ways to enjoy it, right? There's lactose dairy products and there's a pill. Food sensitivities. I can't stand this one, but I'll talk about it. <laughs> oh, please, because that's enough. That's a lot of women come to the world of intuitive eating says, but I have all these food sensitivities. So what are we going to do in that in intuitive eating? Right. So the food sensitivities are typically tested by an, a test called an IgG food test. That's another kind of immune response. But that response is different than an IgE test. So IgG test is sort of your immune immune system responding to a foreign body, which is a food, and then realizing, oh, this isn't going to hurt me. But it immediately comes out and says, I don't know what this is. Let me check it out. And then it backs off, right? So the IgG test can almost, uh, you know, it's used by a lot of practitioners to say you're you have a sensitivity to this, cut out 20 foods and you'll feel better, right? But I think that exacerbates 
eating disorders and disordered eating behaviors and the stress and the fear that come along with those. But what we do know about IgG tests, number one, they're false. It's not true information. Number two, the IgG test will test for this specific immunoglobulin. And what it really does is shows that your body is able to uh, tolerate these foods. Over time, you've built a tolerance to them. So if you notice that when you get this test done by somebody who is not a gastroenterologist and not a dietitian, because that's not who, who will use these because we know that that information isn't true, you might see that you're cutting out a lot of foods you eat yes. because your body's used to them. It tolerates these foods. It's probably not those foods. And that's what happened to me when I, I, I've done many of them at the time and all of them were the food, what I eating. Mm-hmm. And then now that I understand what you just explained, I'm like, well, it's just because I was eating the food and they were telling you before I remember those tests, they were telling you to eat all the food you normally don't eat. And then it came out onto the test, almost proving that you shouldn't be eating those, those food. It was kind of catch 22. Right. So food sensitivity, AKA food intolerance, there's no science to back up the current method of testing, right? With the exception of certain intolerances like lactose, right? Like, like uh, sucrose, which is another one. It's not common, but there's a test for it. Um, but as far as food sensitivities, like getting a list long of foods that you're allergic to, or you're intolerant to not a thing. Okay. So let's imagine that you're one of those person listening to the podcast right now. And you're like, but I can't diet and I can't restrict anymore. I'm interested in learning intuitive eating and becoming an intuitive eater. What do I do with this? Well, so how I tend to work with my clients who come with one of those tests is explain to them just as I did with you how they're not valid tests. Uh, I also like to put in there a little bit about how wellness culture is making so much money off these tests. You can buy them on Facebook and Instagram. You can get them through naturopaths and health coaches because anyone can administer them, but the people who aren't administering them are the health professionals that have read the research, like the doctors. Because they know that the tests aren't valid. (laughs) Right, right. So it's a lot of backing up a little bit and teaching, right? Um, and, and then there, there's reintroduction that needs to take place and maybe one by one so that the folks that have restricted can feel safe around those foods and know they're not an issue. But the other piece is, and this happens a lot, I'll say to somebody, so you cut out these 20 foods. Why are you coming to see me? You should feel better. Mm-hmm. And they don't because that wasn't it. That wasn't the issue. That wasn't it. Right. And that could be exacerbating the issue because now you just cut out all these other foods. What I have also, and you tell me your take on this, what I've also observed in um, looking at some of these food that were formerly intolerant, when people start eating it, at first, it's like their brain is like freaking out because for so long they've been restricted and the brain creates symptoms in the body to try to prove itself right. So often sugar is one of those things that people will say I'm intolerant to, and then they reintroduce it with intuitive eating. And then within a few days, they say, well, I have knee pain now. So it's the fault of sugar. Are you seeing the same thing? So, uh, you know, <laughs> I get what you're saying. I definitely do. And I feel so bad for sugar. because it's, I know. He's <laughs> really not a bad guy. Really, he's not a bad guy. Um, but, you know, I, I will tell people to, I will teach people how to reintroduce. So it's not just a one-time thing. I do have them do some deep breathing, some positive mantras before to calm the central nervous system before trying it. If they're not ready and it's bringing up so much anxiety, we'll wait. 
Or we might start easier, like let's bring in some fruit. Let's bring in some, a whole grain, something that's not as scary as have a gummy bear. Let's see what happens, you know, kind of thing. Yeah, because it's a good point because you're so afraid of the food. Your nervous system feels threatened as you bring this food into your into your mouth and consuming it, that the nervous system will react and potentially create symptoms into the body that were just a reaction to the threat that the nervous system felt by eating the food that was formerly so bad. It's a vicious cycle. It's a vicious cycle. And I, you know what, I find it so interesting that sugar has been vilified because back in my day in, uh, you know, when I was in high school and college, carbohydrates were the thing like that's what yeah, we it was ate. fat yeah <laughs> we're the same age <laughs> yeah and we were we didn't eat fat it was all about how much you know how much carbohydrate can you eat and stay away from the fat and then you know that because diets don't work the wellness culture had to go and find something else so then they started to vilify carbohydrates and give us protein so then paleo is born And now it's keto like let's vilify don't have too much protein really eat all fat and now after keto, because we've already vilified carbohydrates, proteins, and fats, which are macronutrients, there's nothing left. So what else is there to do? Fast, right? So now everything. So let's cut out all the food altogether. Right. So like, let's just cut it out altogether. But I think what's really interesting is that carbohydrates and sugars are in fruits, vegetables, whole grains, nuts and seeds, beans, dairy. So why is the majority of our food supply or the things that keep us alive, why do they all have sugar in them? Because mm -hmm. our brain needs it. The number one fuel for our brain is glucose, which comes from sugar. And we need to have that in order for our brain to function. And if we're not eating it, our brain's not going to function correctly. So those false beliefs that we've taken in from wellness culture will be really hard to debunk if we've restricted something that feeds our body. And our mm, that's so good. Okay, so let's talk about another thing that came up when I asked people for questions, because I had a lot of questions. Elimination diets. I don't like those either. No, <laughs> no we'll talk about this. So elimination diets are unnecessary, unless okay. you are being treated by a doctor or a dietitian, because you have a diagnosis that warrants the need of one. Right? Hmm. So for instance, there's something called um, eosinophilic esophagitis, where you have um, a narrowing of your esophagus or strictures, things growing, you know, to close up your, to narrow your esophagus. And that can be caused by an allergic reaction to food going down the esophagus. So in that case, an elimination diet is necessary, but with an elimination diet, and this is in every single case, reintroduction is necessary. It's not a lifelong restriction. Is that what you're saying? Out and say, oh, that was it. Because you won't know if it was it unless you, re unless you reintroduce it and it causes the symptoms to come back. With, with um, eosinophilic esophagitis, or it's called EOE, there will be um, an endoscopy. So the doctor can look to see if you've healed. But with everything else, so for instance, with IBS, the elimination diet is the first phase of the low FODMAP diet. And so FODMAP is an acronym of fermentable carbohydrates. So in the first phase, that's the elimination, the fermentable carbohydrates are removed. But in that, number one, it's a two to six week elimination, and then reintroduction happens. And number two, 
not all carbohydrates are removed, just the ones that are fermentable. So all food groups are allowed. There are different foods from each category that may cause symptoms. So those are pulled out, but there are still other options. Okay. So let's imagine that we, we do a supervised elimination diet. So what I'm hearing is it is a tool of medicine, but under supervision, because it's a diagnosable condition that requires an elimination diet. So go see a practitioner like you who specialize in GI issue and is a dietitian. Let's say we find that something is not working out well for our esophagus. Then we withdraw it from the diet, but we're going to keep trying to bring it back. Is that what I'm hearing? So for, for EOE, that's something like celiac, where maybe you wouldn't bring it back because it does cause damage. But for something like IBS, when you've done reintroduction, and if you did not have a successful reintroduction of a food, it doesn't mean you'll never be able to have it. You'll put it at the bottom of your list, you'll try another one, and eventually you'll try it back. And not only has that been proven in research, but anecdotally, I can tell you myself that there were foods that I was not able to eat when I first put myself through it. And now I'm able to eat foods that I had pulled out for six years, I hadn't had them, and was able to say, okay, I feel like I want to try again. And I try again. And food works. So my list of foods that I avoid has gotten smaller and smaller. But there's also this with IBS, if you come up across a food that becomes a trigger food for you, and maybe you have a couple of them, that doesn't mean you can't eat them. That this is like intuitive eating, right? So how do I want my body to feel when I'm done eating? And so if I eat something that is one of my trigger foods, I get to decide how I want to feel. So if I know, for instance, Milk will give me gas and diarrhea in four hours, like on clockwork, right? On the clock. (laughs) Do I want to have this food? Because I know how I'll feel. Sometimes I have it. And sometimes I will have an alternative, like a lactose-free version. And sometimes I'll take a pill. But if I don't have a pill and there's something I want to try, sometimes I might just say, well, where am I going to (laughs) be? And then there's other foods that if I eat them, might give me four days of pain. And that I know, I don't really want to feel that way. And I have experimented with it, and it wasn't worth it. So those foods I will avoid, but none of those foods will cause damage, they just cause symptoms. Oh, this is brilliant. Okay. So because one of the thing that happened with elimination diet is the shame around eating the forbidden food. And that's a whole other cycle of stress, right? Because people, oh my God, I had this food, I'm such a bad person, I'm not supposed to have that. So what we're, what you're saying is, Moving through intuitive eating with that requires you to look at the whole guilt and policing behind that restricted food. Yeah, for the most part, it's not a black or white issue. There's lots of gray in there. And of course, with the understanding that people with celiac disease, for example, they will have damage done to their systems. It's not safe for them to eat meat but that, you know, or gluten-containing grains. But that's not true for everyone. So let's talk about... Let's imagine that you do have a list of food that you've worked with a supervised practitioner and we know that these food don't work for you. Then how do we deal with the the whole restriction of it, craving of it and wanting it and feeling deprived? So I think the more we deprive ourselves, the more we're going to want something, right? That's the nature of the beast. That's the restrict binge cycle, right? And, you know, that's something that I'm sure your listeners have heard you talk about before, because it's, you know, a common occurrence that when we restrict ourselves, we're going to think about it. It's like, if I said, don't 
don't think about a white elephant. It's the first thing that pops into your head, right? So I think that if it's something that will harm you, then find a suitable substitution so that you can still enjoy that food just in a safe way. So for example, if you do have celiac disease, then instead of having wheat bread, you find a really good gluten-free bread so you can still have bread. You can still have the sandwich. Right, exactly, exactly. And with people with lactose intolerance, there are some really great lactose-free brands out there and there are plant-based ice creams out there. You know, the lactose-free ones are ice cream. They're just missing the milk sugar. They have other sugar in there. I know. I was at, in the dairy part of the grocery store and they make everything lactose free these days. I was blown away just in a couple of years, how much product came out. Like I could have cheese, yogurt, milk, everything was lactose free. Yeah. And that's an option. That's the, that's the one benefit to wellness culture, right? Is that years ago before like cutting out gluten was a thing, you couldn't find gluten-free products for people with celiac disease. And now, because going gluten-free is like the first line of defense, and I say that with tongue-in-cheek, the first line of defense for fixing anything is like, oh, let's cut out gluten, dairy, sugar, right? Um, so there's so many gluten-free products on the market. And my, my wish is that the low FODMAP diet, which when I say diet, it's a dietary intervention, but the low FODMAP diet becomes co-opted by wellness culture, even though it's not a weight loss diet, so that I can go down a supermarket aisle and find all foods that are safe for my clients, you know, and myself and make it easy. And there are some products that have that are marking that, but I'm seeing more keto friendly markings on products than I am seeing low FODMAP marks on products. So so the low FODMAP diet is used for what and what is that? So the low FODMAP diet is used to manage uh, irritable bowel syndrome. And what it is, is a three-phase diet where in the first phase, we're eliminating fermentable carbohydrates. And you can't really know which carbohydrates are fermentable and which are not. So there are lists. And that's why you need to see a dietitian because a lot of the stuff on the internet is outdated. It's an ongoing science. So you need to go to people who are trained and, and have the access to the data. And you eliminate these foods for two weeks. Um, there's certainly enough food left behind to enjoy as well. Uh, and after two weeks, if you feel a marked difference, then we move to the, uh, the reintroduction phase. If you feel no difference, then food is not the cause. We abandon the diet, we move on to other ideas. Wow, that's different than back in the days when I used, the, when I heard of the FODMAP, it was this long drawn out story that lasted years. No, no years, no years. Wow. I mean, it depends if you're a real foodie, and you like everything that's fermentable, you might have to go through a long list of foods to add back. But for the most part, people who eat certain foods frequently will go through those certain foods and then they, they go on their way and they know, which is phase three, they know which foods from the high FODMAP list that they can tolerate, plus all the low FODMAP foods, and they live that way. And then there's the retesting whenever they feel you know, brave enough or interested enough to try something that might have ended up on their uh, unsuccessful challenge list. One of the observation or the reflection point I've had is, is that good and bad in which wellness culture has brought off awareness to FODMAP diets and to all these things. But unfortunately, people administer that by themselves and are never doing this under supervision which leads to errors, but only that they're not seeing the whole picture of health. Do you recommend that people that have IBS administer themselves the food map diet 
to see if that's the issue or do you recommend something else? I never recommend anyone doing the low FODMAP diet on their own without the help of a dietitian. So, and that's, that's also in the research too, that shows that 86% of the people can be successful on this diet, but with the help of a dietitian. So they may not have success because they may not be doing it right. They may not know about the reintroduction phase or how to reintroduce, right? And I wouldn't start any elimination phase until there's a diagnosis of IBS and other diseases, other structural diseases like irritable bowel diseases like Crohn's and ulcerative colitis and celiac have been ruled out, right? So it's like any disease, we're treating that like a disease. Exactly. And one of the aspects of treatment for IBS is looking at the diet. But it's possible, and I've had a number of clients where it's happened, where we go through the diet, it doesn't work, and food's not the issue. And they're able to, yeah, it's anxiety or it's a medication they're taking that's causing the symptoms, you know, and we go through it all. Okay, cool. I could not have this interview and not talk about gluten. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Because it's the thing, right? So It's been a thing for a long time. Well, what, 10, 15 years? Like gluten is supposed to solve all problems in the earth? Yes. So... Is it true that avoiding gluten is associated with the remission of certain disease or prevention of other disease? Like what's the status in research, factual information around gluten and health? Okay. So if we're looking at just research and factual information, the only people that need to eliminate gluten are those that, this is, this is the factual information, are those with celiac disease and those with something called non-celiac wheat sensitivity or non-celiac gluten sensitivity, where there are a different kind of immunoglobulin in the blood, an IgA, that shows up related to gluten that shows that there's an insensitivity to it, which is different than an allergy, right? So there's a sensitivity to not an insensitivity, um, which is different than an allergy. So an allergy is celiac disease, right? It's like celiac disease. And if you have the food, it's going to cause structural damage. The sensitivity doesn't cause structural damage, it causes discomfort, but it exists, right? Then there's the third version of people who can't have gluten-containing grains, which is people who have a fructan intolerance. A fructan intolerance is the fermentable part of the carbohydrate in those grains that also contain gluten. So grains that contain gluten are wheat, rye, and barley, they also contain fructans. So those are people who go through the low FODMAP diet because fructans are part of the oligosaccharides or the O in FODMAP. And those we we look through. Uh, I did go to a conference where a doctor talked about a fourth group of people who should or do eliminate um, gluten. So the first group is people with an allergy, people with a sensitivity, people with a fructan intolerance and Californians. Californians. He said, because everyone he runs into from California, they've cut out gluten because they think it was health promoting. And if you walk into a restaurant in California, you're going to find lots of gluten-free options. It turns out not to be the case though. The majority of people do not need to eliminate gluten from their diets. There are no other diseases that show where gluten is causing the problem, including hyperactivity, including um, anxiety, including arthritis. Mm -hmm. I know I'm going to get all the, the nasty fan mail, but there's no evidence that shows that that's the case. And even with thyroid disease, 
anecdotally, there's lots of data showing, oh, people benefit from being off gluten with thyroid issues. But this, the research has not proven that. Uh, that's interesting because I'm obviously in a circle of nutritionists. That's my background and health coaching. And coincidentally enough, I've seen a lot of people who were and have been for years on a gluten-free diet, like wellness diet, and they've developed while being on those diets for years, thyroid conditions. Mm -hmm. So if gluten was the issue and they've been avoiding it for years, then that doesn't make sense. Right. So there might be a correlation for some folks, but for other folks, there might be the correlation in the opposite direction. That's why correlation is not causation. So avoiding gluten casually can actually be doing nothing for you or causing you more stress and more harm. Sure. Yeah. Especially if it messes with your, your mental health. Which is the case for many people, because again, I'll, I'll think of the people listening that are leaving the world of wellness culture and they're attempting to come into the world of intuitive eating. They're like, but I'm intolerant to gluten, but I crave it all the time. So now they're in that state of deprivation and restriction, but they have also the stress of eating gluten, thinking it's going to cause them a health condition. Like it's like a, this space of nowhere land. Mm -hmm. I think you have to go back to the source. What made you walk away from gluten? Did it help the issue? Do you know for sure that it was a gluten or something else? right? Because we don't always take into consideration health behaviors that go along with changes. So was the change to your arthritis because you pulled out gluten or because you started swimming? Yes. Right. And I think what you said is also very important in that unless you have an allergy where it's causing harm, it doesn't mean you can't have it. You just make an educated decision and perhaps decide to still have it and suffer that short-term discomfort. If there is short-term discomfort if. Even at all, right, right. Because I know for me, I'll, I'll take myself an example. When I, when I quote, reintroduced gluten years ago, I had no issue. Now, mind you, there was a phase, and this is where we can talk about microbiome. I have, it is my understanding, and you tell me if it's true, that when you restrict a food for a long period of time, the microorganism assigned to digesting these food reduce. So when you reintroduce the food, you may feel a discomfort in digesting it. Is that true? So it's not the microbes that are helping with the digestion necessarily. It's usually enzymes that are, that are throughout your digestive system. So there is, there is research to show that if you cut out dairy, that you may not produce lactose anymore. Um, and then there's also something called um, alpha-galactosidase, which is the enzyme that helps to break down the, um, the carbohydrates in beans. Mm -hmm. People might say they're gassy, but if you eat beans regularly or not, you can still build that back up. Once they, exactly. have, once they know that they're needed, they come back to life, right? So um, lactose, lactose, not so much, but other ones very much so. That's what happened to me with gluten. The, when I reintroduce it, and now like even three, four months within reintroducing it, I started digesting it fine and no more gas. Like it was just like an, any other food. Wonderful. Awesome. So bottom line, we're going to wrap this interview up. It's been fascinating and people are going to love it. But bottom line, what I'm hearing from you is that 
if you have a GI condition, A, go see your doctor, attempt to get diagnosed, and then see a dietitian who specialize in GI issue as an intuitive eating approach, not just GI issue, because that's two different specialty with, uh, with intuitive eating. Is that what I'm hearing? That was said perfectly. Yeah. Because just a dietitian who focuses on GI issue, but is not acquainted with intuitive eating can get you back into a very restrictive way of eating. Am I correct? Possibly for sure. Yes. Yes. If they're okay. not, if they're not open to a weight inclusive approach to health and are, you know, entangled with wellness culture themselves, they could be doing more help than harm. Um, awesome. So that's what you do, correct? Yes, that's what I do. So talk to us a little bit about how we can reach out to you or how we can work with you and what you offer. Okay, sure. So you can always reach out to me, find me on my website, which is www.goodnessgraciousliving.com. Um, you can also find me on Instagram and my handle is at goodnessgraciousliving. Um, and on my website, what you'll find is a couple of ways to work with me. One is one-on-one where, you know, we, I, I'm 100% telehealth. So um, a phone or video, but then I also have two um, courses that are self-paced. Okay. So one is a food and body freedom course, which helps people to get off the diet cycle and understand intuitive eating. And the other one is called gut in sync. Mm -hmm. And that one really explains how to manage your IBS. If you can't work with a GI dietitian, it's everything that I talk about with my patients, uh, including the ins and outs of the low FODMAP diet and um, supplements and alternative therapies that are all based in science um, to help with IBS symptoms. Oh, that's and beautiful. It, yeah. And, that, and that's for, you know, that's, that's uh, even though people are very individualized in their symptoms with IBS, because they're so different, uh, I do give a wide range of ways to manage symptoms, as, even if food doesn't work. I have other. That's, that's brilliant. There. Yeah. Cool. And you also, you train professionals. So you're going to be teaching within our non-diet professionals. So if you're a professional and you are in our mentorship program, Beth's going to teach an advanced version of this. This was basic 101. And then the professional will get a more advanced version. This was brilliant. I feel like there's going to be a part two coming soon. We just introduced the basic here. Yes. I'm sure there'll be a lot of questions coming. As there will be. Ups. Yeah. But I would, I would recommend, like, if you are someone listening to this and you have GI, been diagnosed or trouble with a GI disorder, to go see someone like Beth or Beth to specifically work with you in the context of intuitive eating and health at every size to help you with your GI issue. There you have it, sisters. Is it fascinating? It's like that is the information that is not out there right? That it's at not on the first couple pages of Google, because it's not diet culture. But that's what we need. So I'm so happy I was able to facilitate this session for you. And if you know of anyone that has a gastrointestinal disorder, GI issue, please send this episode to them. So at least they can have another point of view on their gut health. Um, and it's going to be up to them to make a choice, right? If you have a GI disorder and you need help, I would highly recommend working with Beth. Uh, 25 years of experience, personal journey, lived experience, and I know she is going to be 
treating you in a non-diet approach. So highly recommend that you work with her. All her information is in the show notes. I hope this serves you well. I love you and I'll see you in the next episode. Hey you, if you enjoy listening to this show, you have to come and check Conquer and Try. It's my monthly coaching program that comes with expert courses that will show you exactly how to take this life-changing work and apply it into your own life. We teach you how to change your mindset, eat intuitively, and master body confidence. That you've decided to stop dieting today or years ago, Conquer and Thrive will help you take this knowledge deeper into real-life practices. It comes with access to me as your coach and my team of experts. Join us by simply going to www.stephaniedodzie.com forward slash join. I can't wait to meet you inside our Conquer and Thrive community. I'll see you on the other side.